Well, welcome, small group. It's good to see you. I'm assuming the number attending by uh, streaming is higher than the number here, but it is good to, to, be, uh, to be together good to see all of you. But today, uh, as you know, working through the Gospel of John, and today we're in John chapter 17. And uh, I want to sort of set the context for this, if I can, as we get started. John 17 is sometimes called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And uh, it's called that way because he is our high priest. He does intercede for us and so on. And it's, uh, it's really a remarkable prayer. We're going to spend a lot of time on it. I'll take it apart. But I want to remind you, too, this is at the end of the Upper Room Discourse of Jesus, which is John 14, 15, 16. There is, there is some discussion about where Jesus actually prays this uh, in, in the expositors and, and New Testament uh, scholars who have studied this. There, if the debate is, is around this uh, idea. Does Jesus pray this at Gethsemane? Because as you know, I'm sure you know uh, where we are in the Gospel of John, turn to the life of Christ. We're very, very close to his arrest and then his subsequent execution by the Roman Empire. So when Jesus, when John says, he's writing, and when Jesus had spoken these words, he's talking about the upper discourse, which we've just studied. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, now this first part of his prayer, verses one through five, Jesus prays for himself. And I want you to notice his prayer here and quite, a, quite important uh, focus on what's on the mind of Jesus. Father, the hour has come. And obviously the hour of his crucifixion, resurrection, and so on. What he has been saying, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Now the hour has come. Glorify your son that the Son may glorify you. Now, again, I mean, just think about that. He is about to go to the cross and suffer the most excruciating, almost unimaginable death that has ever been developed by any empire anywhere in history. And yet he speaks of this to glorify himself and glorify his Father. And, of course, what that means is as God, through his Son, deals with the human problem of sin, as God, through his Son, provides freedom for all humanity from sin, and to be part of eternity in fellowship with him forever, that does bring glory to God. Because of the redemptive plan of, of God that is now <clears throat> about to be effected does bring glory to God. Since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and to him is Jesus, he's praying about himself. This is language that he's used throughout the, our study of the Gospel of John, that, that the Father has given him individuals whom he will save, and those individuals will bring glory to the Father, and that gift is the gift of eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. John 3.16. And this eternal life, that they know you, the only, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you sent. Now, I just notice again, 
that they know you, the only true God. And the word know there, K-N-O-W, the word know there is epigenosco. It's a term of relationship. It's just not knowing factual knowledge about. It's, it's a relational term. Know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And there again, you see uh, what I think is really important, quality of God the Father and God the Son, the true person of, of the Trinity. And so this equality is, is going to be manifested in this relationship where is possible for all of eternity with uh, the Father and the Son. Verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, which is what we have been studying. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now that that's it's quite a quite a significant statement by the Lord Jesus. Glorify me in your presence with the glory for the world existing. So let's just pose a question here. This answers one of the questions that is asked when you start thinking theologically about the incarnation. If Jesus is the eternal Son of God, and Jesus adds to his deity humanity in the incarnation, which we celebrate Christmas. And then the 33 plus years that he lived on planet Earth, what did he set aside? In the words of Paul in Philippians 2, of what did Jesus empty himself? Because he's exhibited omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence. He's exhibited all the attributes of God. So what did he set aside? Here, Here we learn what he set aside was his glory. And you momentarily see that in Matthew 17 with the transfiguration of Jesus, where the, the inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John, see, momentarily see the glorified Jesus. John sees that in John Revelation chapter 1. Isaiah sees that in Isaiah chapter 6. So Jesus is quite an important theological statement of the Lord, and it answers a question that's an important question. Of what did he empty himself? What did he set aside in the incarnation? Answer his glory. And he says, before the world existed. And so you have this hint then, before the world existed, again, of the eternality of Jesus. He's the eternal son. Because that phrase, before the world existed, is used throughout the scriptures to speak of pre-Genesis 1. Before God created everything. So, I mean, even, even just this very brief, uh, I think fairly easy to understand prayer that Jesus prays to the Father of himself, we've got a couple of theological insights here that are very helpful for us and very important for us. So, the next section, which begins in verse 6 and lasts through, it's really almost the whole prayer, but lasts through uh, verse 19, uh, he prays now for his disciples, for those of you who come to any questions about this prayer that Jesus made for himself or the comments I made in the first five verses? <coughs> it, just, it just validates the Abrahamic covenant. It does. And all of, all of the, the, the elements of the new covenant as well. So it's, it's, a, it's a very powerful prayer. All right, now verse six, he begins to pray for his disciples. And this is, uh, too, an important prayer, because by extension, 
He's praying for you and me too. I have manifested your name to the people. Now that name, and we have seen that, is I am. I am, before Abraham was I am. I am the light of the world, I am that I am. It's Yahweh, that's the root of Yahweh. So I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world, which is how, and I'm not interested in getting into the doctrine of election. That's not the point Jesus is making. But those whom the Father gave to the Son, and that would start with the 12, and the larger 70, and then 120 who will be in the upper, or be in the room waiting for the, the coming of the Holy Spirit. That number keeps growing. They're the initial ones the Father gave to the Son, and then the multitudes that will follow. Yours they were, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now here I think initially he's speaking of the 12 or the 11 or the Judas is left. Now they know that everything that you've given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave to me. They have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. Again, these are things that the Lord has said throughout his ministry that we've been studying. But would you, would you notice this? For I've given them the words that you gave me. This is a very important sentence about the other. The revelation of Jesus is a content-based revelation. It's based on content, on words. It's based on words that you put together in sentences, sentences you put together in paragraphs, paragraphs you put together in books. This is, he's talking about the doctrine and theology of who God is and what God is doing through his son. The words that he has given, and they say, and he says they have received them, and they come to know in truth that I came from you. Christ's Christ's revelation, his words are true. And these 11, and then 70, I mean, and all the others, including you and me, now know this to be true and have believed that you sent me. The consequence, the result of this revelation of Jesus and the content of his revelation is faith. So, I mean, that is... This, again, is an important sentence. Every time God reveals something, whether it's revealing in creation or revealing in human conscience or revealing his moral law or revealing it in Jesus, the four major categories of his revelation, the expectation of God is that people will respond to faith, that they will believe it, that they will believe that it's true and respond to faith. And what the Lord is saying in his prayer for the disciples and more broadly, ultimately for all of us, is that they've received it and they believe they've responded in faith. So then he goes on, verse nine. This is what is, I think, just almost astonishing to me. I am praying for them. That's why this is called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Jesus as the high, we talked about it this way, so I'm going to say it again. Jesus as the high priest of the new covenant is praying for you and me. He's praying for us. I am not praying for the world. Remember, world means that system that stands opposed to God over which Satan rules. But for those whom you've given me, they are yours. 
Then verse 11, 10. All mine is yours, and yours are mine. There's equality of the Trinity. In this case, we're just talking about the Father and Son. The Spirit isn't here yet uh, in terms of the discussion. But all of mine and yours are mine. That, that's equality of the Father and Son. And so uh, this, this is really a, quite a wonderful prayer. And I, I don't know how you guys respond to something like this, but the wonderful nature of this prayer should yield comfort for you and me, should real, yield hope for you and me. The Lord Jesus Christ is praying for us. That's one of his roles. I, I did a uh, sermon series at my church uh, in the middle of the summer, July into August. But anyway, it was on who is Jesus and why does it matter? One of the things I talked about at the end of, of that series was the, the new covenant ministry of Jesus. What is his ministry as our high priest? And one of the most important, and it's just repeated over and over and over again throughout the New Testament, is his ministry of interceding for us as our advocate, as, as, our, as, our, as our legal counsel when charges are brought against us. First John chapter 2, verse 1 says he is our advocate. Uh, you have this remarkable, almost unimaginable picture of the Lord Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, praying for us. I, I mean, I just I think about that, I meditate upon that thought, and I, I just I just come away absolutely amazed at the grace of God, at the compassion of God, and the care of God for me, for you, for everyone else. Thanks to that. And so you have this, this tremendous statement, I am praying for them. <laughs> I'm not praying for the people of the world. I'm praying for those who have responded in faith to me. All mine, it's mine. All mine are yours and all yours are mine. I am glorified in them. Let's think about that for just a minute. I am glorified in them. This is Jesus. I am glorified in them. What does that mean? They're the fruit. And I shouldn't say that. You and I, we, we are the fruit. We are the result of the redemptive ministry of Jesus. Of what he did at the cross, through his resurrection, through his ascension, now at the right hand of the Father, Jesus is glorified. He's exalted because he finished his redemptive work. That is exactly that is exactly how the Apostle Paul talks about it. In Ephesians, to some extent Galatians, absolutely in Philippians, that, that we, the redeemed, bring glory to the Son. And that, that is, that in one very real sense, uh, that is one of the great purposes because no one else could have accomplished our redemption. We can't work for it. We can't earn it. We can't merit it. So God did it all through his son, and that does bring glory to him, and it brings glory to the son. And so many of the, we're getting into that season already, but so many of the Christmas carols that we sing regularly in Christmas season, that's what they're about. <laughs> the angels are singing glory, you know, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and all those tremendous lyrics that are part of our Christmas song. So with that, he now moves on, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. 
Now here becomes uh, here comes a part of the upper of the uh, high priestly prayer of Jesus, where we get the phrase. I'm pretty sure you've heard of it. We're in the world, but not of the world. Here we begin to see this language that that's where we get it actually incorporated into the priestly prayer. I am no longer in the world. What does he mean by that? Well, he is about to go back to the Father in the ascension, so he's no longer in the world. His his public ministry is over. He's about to go to the cross. He's about to die. He's about to be resurrected. So his ministry so I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you. Jesus saying to the Father, I'm coming to you. The ascension. So to me, to me, that's almost that's almost frightening. <laughs> I'm no longer in the world, but they're in the world. And so that's you, and that's I. Jesus is not in the world. He's in the exalted right hand of the Father. His work is done. He's interceding and praying for us. But we're still in the world, in that, in the middle of that dark world, that system that's in rebellion against God over which Satan rules. So here's Jesus said, Holy Father. By the way, that is the only time that appears in the New Testament. Holy Father. Holy, referencing God, is all over the place. Father is all over the place. But Holy Father. So this request that the Lord is about to utter here in this verse, verse 11, is introduced by this reference, this title, this summary. Holy Father. You are righteous. You are perfect. You are holy. You're the Father. Keep them in your name. That's the request. All that we've been reading from verse 6 on is the introduction to this is the request. Keep them in your name. Enable them, Holy Father, to persevere, to endure. Keep them in your name. And you go to the little tiny epistle of Jude, J-U-D-E, it's right before the book of Revelation. In the introduction to that little epistle, Jude describes those to whom he's writing, kept by the Father. Jude got that language from this prayer. Jesus' prayer to the Father is, keep them in your name. So when Jude addresses the people whom he's writing this letter to, he describes kept by the Father. And that is you, and that is I. We're kept by the Father. <laughs> that's, a, that's a tremendous word, kept, is the word I mean. That, that word kept is a tremendous word of security and safety. And so you kind of, and we should theologically, get the strong idea that our perseverance and endurance is a result of the Father's grace that he extends to us. Keep them in your name, which you've given me that they may be one, even as we are one. And so this, this statement, we are one, we are one, they may be one. Let's think about that for a minute. Um, it is a call for unity. It is a call for unity among the disparate believers that will come to faith in Christ, even as we are one. 
Now, let's think about that for a minute. Just remember how we talk about the Trinity and our definition of God as Trinity. One essence of three persons who differ relationally and functionally. There's the unity of God, but there's a diversity of the persons. So when the Lord Jesus prays that they may be one, even as we are one, the idea of one, of oneness, of unity, is unity in the midst of lots of diversity. So it's it's a unity based, it's a unity based on what we believe. It's not racial, it's not ethnic, it's not socioeconomic, it's 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 not any other category you put it in, because there is absolute equality of all human beings at the cross. And that absolute equality of everyone at the cross is the basis for a unity. There's no super spiritual set of elite Christians that have made it, and then there's the rest of you. That is foreign to the scriptures. There is this spiritual equality, which is the basis of the unity. And this, this concept, they may be one even as we are one, is developed by the Apostle Paul. He develops it in his letters when he's talking about the church, because I mean, that's obviously these individuals who Christ is praying for is his church. And so he, that becomes the basis. You see that in Ephesians chapter four, particularly, that the unity of the Godhead and the diversity within the Godhead is the unity within the diversity of the church that we are to model, model our unity after. And I just said, it's a fantastic idea that it's one of the, the functional purposes of the of the trinitarian nature of god it becomes the model for how we organize our churches how we think about our church diversity within the unity and diversity is a given it's, that's absolutely real but the unity is based on our salvation in christ we all come to jesus in the same way by putting our faith in him this finished work and so again this is it's a very very important concept it's a prayer that Jesus is uttering for the Father that is developed throughout the New Testament. Again, really, especially in the, in the letter. Now, let's just continue. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given. I have guarded them. Now, here... Certainly, and very specifically, the Lord Jesus is praying about the 11 and, and maybe the larger 70 that we read about a couple, couple places in the Testament gospel. But if he's saying here, Jesus kept them. Jesus, and then he uses a different verb, Jesus guarded them. He protected them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. To whom is that referring? Judas. And so, you know, Judas is, Judas is the son of destruction. The scriptures might be fulfilled. And we had read about that earlier, referring to Psalm 41, verse nine. And so you have, you have the Lord Jesus. I just find this so comforting in so many ways. His prayer is, Father, keep them in your name. Next verse, verse 12, and I've kept them. While I was in the world, I kept them. I kept the 11. 
I kept the larger seven. You know, all those now that are coming, I've kept them. But now I'm coming back to you. We just read that there at the beginning of verse 11. I'm coming to you. I'm coming back to you. But now, Father, will you keep them? Holy Father, you keep them. So it's kind of like Jesus is passing them off now. But now I'm coming to you, verse 13. These things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus talked about that in chapter 15, verse 11. My joy. Now he's talking about it. I'm coming to you, these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Again, one of the intended results of what Christ has done is joy. And I don't know if we need to talk about that because we've talked about that before. But that that's a supernatural attitude toward life. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, peace. And so you see it here. Jesus is saying the intended result of what I have been speaking to them about, these things that I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them, given them your word. Again, there's that content. I've given them your word. And the world has hated them. We read about that. We studied that earlier. Jesus warned the disciples several times. Don't expect people to accept you. Don't expect people to necessarily accept what you're saying. And he's saying, and the world's here, but they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Again, there's where we get that phrase, we're in the world, but not of the world. And then verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. I really wish Jesus hadn't prayed that. <laughs> Tell you, I wish you would have prayed, Father, when they put your faith, put their faith in you, take them home to glory. That's, that's what I would pray. But obviously, but the next part of the sentence is good. Yes, right. But you keep them from the Okay, I don't take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. And the evil one is Satan which he's warned over and over and over again. So he, again, you have this, this verse 15, this tremendous word comfort of the Lord. Don't take him out of the way. And you know why Jesus didn't pray or take him home to glory immediately. Because if he took every believer that came to know him to glory, there wouldn't be anything left to represent him. There's nobody left. <laughs> and so, I mean, that's not going to work. We are his ambassadors. We, we, are, we, are, his, we are his champions in this world. So the prayer is, keep them from the evil one. And that becomes one of the major, well, I should say one of the other major requests. That's a part of the high priestly prayer. Keep them in your name, verse 11, keep them from the evil one. Same word, keep, keep. So it's it's, it's tremendously important focus. The world has hated them and their enemy is Satan. Keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world. I'm continuing in verse 16. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now, this verse, verse 17, I, I want to spend a little bit of time on. Sanctify them in, or you could translate that by, or you could translate that with. That preposition in Greek can carry in, by, with as a term of content. 
Sanctify them with your truth. Your word is truth. So let's stop and talk for a minute. The term sanctify, or as, as a, a verb, or the noun sanctification, is not a new word to you if you've been in this class for a while. We've talked a lot about that. Justification is that event where you put your faith in Christ and the result is you're acquitted of sin and declared righteous. Sanctification, or sanctify as a verb, is that process by which the Heavenly Father is conforming you to the image of his son. And so Jesus now is saying, now just think of his, think of the way in which he's structuring this prayer. Keep them in your name. Keep them from the evil one. Sanctify them. So the sanctification work is by the Father, through the Holy Spirit, to be like the Son, Jesus. That's how the New Testament puts this. The sanctifying work is by the Father, sanctify them in your truth. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, who is the agent of sanctification, and the end goal is to be like Jesus. So there you see again the Trinitarian nature of God. So that Jesus is praying, sanctify them with your truth. Your word is true. So let's take that second part of the clause. Your word is true. Sanctify them in or with or by your truth. Your word is true. So it is the word of God that is the primary means of sanctification. Now that's such an important sentence, I'm going to repeat it. The word of God is the primary means of sanctification. And so to be in that process of being conformed to the image of, of, of Christ, that is only possible. Well, maybe I shouldn't be that dogmatic. The primary way in which God's going to do that, and without it, it's almost impossible to achieve it, is the word of God. And that's why a, a Bible study like this and the other ones that I lead and many, many others that are involved, that you can be involved with. This is the purpose of this. That's, that's the major reason I do Bible studies. It is the means of God sanctifying people. It's, first of all, the means by which they come to faith. They have to understand what God's done for them in Christ. But then this is the key, the key means to that end. Because it's the word of God that explains to us who God is, what he's doing in this world, and the values and virtues and standards by which we're to live, and all of those things that, that we've talked about over the, over the years of this study. So and basically, if you don't if you don't hear the word, nothing else happens. That's right. That's exactly right. I mean, this is this is a this verse. Verse seventeen is a, is a very powerful verse. It's the prayer of Jesus: "Sanctify them with your truth. Your word is truth." That that is built upon by the Apostle Paul. Again, Paul builds on so much of this in his letters. But that this the word of God that sanctifies. And so what does he say to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 into chapter 4? Preach the word. He says that. So what does he say to Titus? Instill in your people the word. And so this, this strong language of Jesus is carried on by Paul and the others. And it's being carried on today in 2020. I believe this with all my it's my life. 
If I had not been introduced to the Word of God in 1972 and come to faith and began to grow in that, I'd never be doing what I'm doing now. Amen. It's just, it, it's how transformational the Word of God is. And that that's this, this incredibly significant words that Jesus is uttering here are the basis for what we're doing even today. Question? Yeah. What, what do you attribute to, because Paul wasn't one of the 12. What do you attribute to the theological parallels from John, Matthew, Mark, and Paul with them? There's, there's significant parallels with Paul, and he wasn't with the 12. Is it the Holy Spirit? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, that obviously has to be the first part of that answer. It is the Holy Spirit, uh, who I'm obviously very much at work in Paul's life as he is in all of our lives. But I, I think I'd step back even a little bit further to really understand Paul and the significance of Paul in, in the New Testament and in those very early years of the church. Is remember he was trained at the University of Tarsus as a Jew in the Greco-Roman way of thinking, and then trained as a Pharisee by Gamaliel the First in his great school there in Jerusalem. And so Paul had Paul is the intersection of a Greco-Roman way of thinking, the Jewish worldview and way of thinking, and his spiritual leadership as a Pharisee. When he comes to know Christ, Glenn, all of that just meshes together perfectly. But, and this I think is an important point for us to really step back and think a little bit about, he comes to faith in Christ on Damascus Road in AD 35. The first missionary journey that is recorded for us beginning in Acts 13 is 13 years later, it's AD 48. So what happens in those 13 years? They're silent, we, we don't know. We read about, we read about in Acts, in Acts, where he is taken by Barnabas and others for safety reasons up to Tarsus. He's there for 13 years. I believe that, that Glenn, I believe that he, he puts those 13 years to get used. That's when he puts his theology together, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, no question about it. But he knew the law. He knew the Old Testament. But he also knew the, the Greek way of argumentation. He borrows Aristotle's method of argumentation. You see it in a couple of different chapters. And he puts all that together in presenting a well-thought-through, well-integrated theology under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that is unique to the New Testament. The theology of the New Testament is based on Paul. It really is. The book of Romans is the most deep theological book in the Bible. Hebrews is, is second to that, although I don't think Paul wrote Hebrews. And so you, all of that is, is part of a, a, an answer to your question and <clears throat> how important it is to know how Paul was trained, how Paul was trained to think, and then under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, how that produces the giant of the early years of the church, the Apostle Paul. And so he, he, uh, <clears throat> he goes way beyond Peter and way beyond John. And part of the reason for that is I think he is trained also in the Greco-Roman way of thinking. That under the sanctifying and, 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 and superintending work of the Holy Spirit can produce a book like Romans or, or even Galatians. 
and which are very, very important theological books. So that's kind of the long answer, but that's kind of the answer to to uh, hello, hello. Question. Yeah, this is Woody. Hey, uh, I think I told you I bought that book of Life of Paul. It's called The Apostle. Yes. Written by Pollock, P-O-L-L-O-C-K. And I'm nearly to the end of it, and it's really revealing to see what Paul went through through yeah. all that teaching. Good. And I'm right at the end where I think they don't really know what happened to him at this point. But uh, I recommend that book to anybody that's studied in the Word. Thank you. Yes, that's a, I'm glad you're reading that, Woody. That's, that's a very, very good book. Yeah. yeah. Pollock, he's written a couple of very good books. He's written a very good biography of Billy Graham, written a very good biography of uh, a number of other giants in the history of the church. That's great. Thanks for sharing that. That's good. Paul, Paul uh, after his encounter Damascus Road, becomes the diametric antithesis. So, so it's amazing. Incredible transformation. Well, that's what God does. It didn't happen overnight. No. So that's the thing that people years. forget. Because if you read the Bible, it's like, okay, he was on a massive road. Right away, he's doing all the next day, he's on a missionary journey. <laughs> and that's not true. <laughs> not that is not that. That is that's why I, I, I remind people of that it's 13 years from the Damascus Road till his first missionary journey. Okay. That's a long time. Right. Okay. That doesn't mean he wasn't just sitting in a, you know, some mountaintop. He is active. You know that in ministry. But this is a transformation of time. What important? It's like you're talking about relationship between Jesus and the Holy Spirit, that unity within the person. So that's developed. He talks about the gifts are right. unity within all that diversity of different gifts. That's right. People somehow seem to think everybody has to have the same one. That's right. yeah. And that's why we really should appreciate diversity because that's how God made everything. His diverse world filled with all kinds of variety. It's in his creation and it's in you, God. You all look different <laughs> and you all come from different experiences with different backgrounds, came to know Christ differently, and you're, what you're doing is different. That's the diversity of, of the body. Right. Yeah. We're good. All right. If there are no other questions, let's move on. I, to verse. Could I, could I, Jim, could I ask a question? Yeah, absolutely. Um, going back to 1711, that they may be one, even as we are one. Um, that is the same word that Jesus uses earlier in John, where he says, I and the father are one, where they they decide they they don't like Jesus. They want to kill him. Um, where where he is equating himself with one as uh, is, is it saying that all of us will? Is that the same definition of that word, or does it have a broader range of definition? Uh, wow, I'm not sure how. Are we going to be seven billion persons in one essence? <laughs> well, see, that's. I, I'm trying to. Th I'm trying to think how, Russ. I want to answer, answer your question. Um, yeah, I know simple ones. <laughs> well, yeah, but the um, the church, and I'm going to try to answer it <clears throat> because you know, in a way, he's talking about the church, and I don't mean the church at the building down the road. The 
yeah, ecclesia, the, that organic, that organic entity, that organic entity that we are unified in Christ. So mm-hmm. that organic entity is one, Russ. We mm-hmm. we are all one of one essence in the sense that we in the sense that we are uh, all united around Jesus, united in our faith in Christ. We are united in what we believe about Christ and so on. And yet that essential unity is not contradicted by the, 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 the which we were just talking about here in the room, but, but the incredible diversity of that one unified. So it's really a reference to the unity of the church. So it's like, it, it, let's paraphrase, Jesus saying, Heavenly Father, as you and I are of one unity, I want them to be of one unity. And that unity is the organic unity of the church. But as we were just saying here in the room, but that organic unity of the church is not contradicted by the incredible diversity of the church, just like the diversity of the Trinity doesn't contradict the unity, but it explains what God is. So the church is what? It is, it is, it is an essential unity based on the faith in Jesus Christ and the core of what we believe. But it is not contradicted by the unbelievable diversity of the church. Whether you're talking about men, women, children, adults, the racial, ethnic, socioeconomic, you can just go on and on and on, that reflects this remarkable, complex diversity. So have I answered it? Have I gotten close to answering what you're asking? Um, I'm not really, but I'll, I'll do a little bit more uh, work on my own, and then uh, maybe I'll I'll ask it a different way next it, week. It, 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 that's what you must you must do and think like Paul does in Ephesians four. You you must he set up an analogy, and ultimately all analogies always break down. Right. But the analogy is as there is essential unity among the three members of the Godhead. There is essential unity in the church. Mm-hmm. It's an analogy. And in that, I mean, ultimately break down. But as there is this unity, there is to be this unity. Right. There's a lot of people that take, that extend that, um, that extend that unity in a, a more significant way in the previous verse than in this verse. Yet they're the same word. So I, I need to do a little bit more of a word study and then get across some other things. Cause I, 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 I like to be on solid ground, you know, when people build bridges. Okay. You have to, but you have to look at the context. When yep. Jesus thought as those words, the father and I are one, he's trying to prove that point mm-hmm. that the father and I are of one essence here, Jesus, because that's the nature of the prayer. As we are one, we want them to be one. So it's an analogy. When, you're, right. when you referenced that earlier chapter, when Jesus says the Father and I are one, that's not, it's not the same context. It's the same word, but he's just proving, he's trying to prove the Father and I are one essence. That's not what he's trying to prove here. Mm. As you and I are of one essence, I want them to be experienced essential unity. Mm-hmm. And that essential unity is based on the work of Christ, the belief in the work of Christ. So Russ, it's an analogy. And um, that's all I have to say about that. But yep, cool. That's a great question. Thank you. And they will be. That's right. 
That's right. Vine, Vine's uh, dictionary talks about concord and harmony, where yes. uh, two or more, these are as they say, but two or, two or more concepts pr produce an impression of agreeableness or resolution. There you go. That's good. That concord, that's a good word. That's a good word. All right, we got a few more minutes. Let's continue. Look at verse 18. This is sort of the, the, the commissioning of Jesus, which we're going to see a number of times before he goes back to the Father. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent men into the world. So now this is our commissioning. He, he said to the Father, I ask you not to take them out of the world, which we read about a couple of verses. Now, what is he saying? Don't take them out, send them in. But here again is an analogy. As you sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. And so this really, and again, this, this is now elaborated upon in the rest of the New Testament. What does it mean for us to be sent into the world? Because we're in the world, but not of the world. We now represent Christ. And Jesus talks about it in Matthew chapter 5. We're his salt. We're his light. Peter says we're the ambassadors of the king. I mean, it's talked about throughout the New Testament. What does it mean to be sent by Jesus into the world? We have a mission. That mission is defined in Matthew 28, is to make disciples of all people. As you go, baptize and teach, you're making disciples. So he's sending us into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So as Jesus sanctifies himself, which he'll do on the cross, in his resurrection, in his ascension, its whole intent, intended result, is the sanctification of those whom the Father has given to him, in or by or with truth. And so he's come kind of almost full circle here, back to this important issue of sanctification, this important issue of as they go into the world and represent me in the world, my prayer for them is that they will continue to be sanctified in, by, or with truth. And as he said earlier, your word is truth of the Father. So if you have a, uh, we're now done with the second part. There's one more part of the prayer, verse 20 through the end, where he prays for all future believers. But this, this prayer is, that we've just gone through is just an important reminder of how the Heavenly Father and, the, and God the Son are mutually interdependent to accomplish the work that he has for, 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 for one another. And it is that work of redemption. And now the work of sanctification. And now he prays, finally, I do not, I'm starting verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So now everyone that follows, and that's you and that is I, through their word. Because remember, a number of these early apostles will write the word of God. They'll write the books of the New Testament. That they may all be one. There's that prayer again as he prayed earlier, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Don't miss this. This prayer for unity is rooted in not only the analogy between the Father and Son, 
but that they are in us. So that the possibility of unity, which we've been talking about, is only possible because of a relationship with the Father and Son through faith. So let's look at that again. That they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So the unity that the Father and Son have is the unity that you and I have in that relational unity with the Father and Son. We read about that earlier, uh, I think it was in Deep in chapter 14, but that, that circle of love, that Father, you love me, and I love you, now we will love them, and they will love us, that circle, that's the same idea here. So it's our relationship with the Heavenly Father, Father in Jesus, Jesus in the Father, we in them, that becomes the basis for our unity. This is the organic unity of the church. Continuing, there's a result to this, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So when the world, remember how world is used, when the world sees believers, when the world sees the unity of believers, when the world sees that supernatural work of sanctification, the intended result is they'll believe. This is why he's sending us into the world. The quest is send them into the world. If you send me into the world, send them into the world. They may believe. So we are now, this is what is development. This is clear. We're now his ambassadors. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. And we um, have to think about that because th that glory that he's referring to is the, the character of the Lord reflected in his, in his values, his virtues, his standards. That you've given me, I've given them. That they may be one, even as we are one there. He's just about the third time he said that. So now let me draw an analogy again. This is important because this is developed in the New Testament. As Jesus manifests and represents the glory of the Heavenly Father, you and I are to manifest and represent the glory of Jesus. Now, what does that mean? The awesome glory that Isaiah describes in Isaiah 6 or that John describes when he sees Jesus in the first chapter of the book of Revelation or what Matthew describes in Peter, James, and John saw in that trans transfiguration of Jesus. No, no that, that's not what it means. But as Jesus reflects the glory of the Father, you and I reflect reflect his glory in our character, in how we live, in our integrity, in our values, in the choices we make. And that, that's kind of what he's saying here. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one. And notice, become, that they may become perfectly one. A unity of purpose, a unity of love, as exists within the Godhead. So as there is a unity of purpose and a unity of love, that circle of love we read about in John 14, as there's that unity of purpose and unity of love in the Godhead, there should be unity of purpose and unity of love in the church. And so again, I mean, this is, this is just, he's kind of saying the same thing with a little bit of nuance each time he states it. Here again is the intended result. So the world may know that you sent me and love them 
even as you loved me. So the love of the Father, the love of the Father toward the Son is the love that the Father is showing toward us. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given to me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And that, um, that word, by the way, that word see there, that's in verse 24, is a very important Greek word. They are out of, it means to stare at, to observe with sustained, ongoing attention. And so what is, what is his prayer there? Fulfill the promise I made in John 14. I'm coming back for you. Where I am, you will be with me for all, all eternity. That's what you remember. That's the promise Jesus made in John 14, beginning of the chapter. I'm going back to the Father. I want to prepare a place for you, but I'm coming back for you. Where I am, you may be with me forever. That's exactly what exactly the same words. That they may be with me where I am to see my glory which you've given me before you, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And that's what you and I will see. Uh, the moment, if the Lord does not come back, the moment we go to be with the Lord, we will see the glory of Jesus. I know that we've never been excited about the biblical truth in this class, but that's kind of an exciting thing to think about. Can I finish this? We're almost out of time. Can I finish this? Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you've sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love which you have loved me, with which you've loved me, may be in them and I in them. That's new covenant language. Now that last that last verse, really the last two verses, this is new. This is exactly what it's been saying. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you've sent me. He said that over and over again. And I made known to them your name. He said that a couple of times in this prayer. And I'll continue to make it known. But this result, that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. And again, he said that before. But this wonderful new covenant language of this remarkable intimate relationship between Father and Son is now available between Father, Son, Spirit, and all of us. And so this, this quite amazing prayer of the Lord Jesus now ends. And chapter 18 begins, <clears throat> excuse me, begins the account of his arrest, and then we're headed to the cross and all that. So we, uh, we really did it. I'm, I'm, I'm just absolutely amazed. I didn't think we'd get through all this. So um, is everybody with me? Great chapter. I hope it's been a blessing to study it. Well, I'm going to pray here because I've got to get to another part of the city uh, on 50th Street, and I've got to be there by quarter after one. So I'm going to pray, and then I'm just going to literally fly out of this room. Thank you very much, Glenn, for setting us all up for this, for the men that are here by means of the Zoom and all of that. Yes, so thank you. Father, we're thankful for our, our time together. Thank you for the technology that enables us to not only here in this room, but also to the many others, the Zoom uh, technology, that wonderful platform. Thank you that Glenn 
has the ability and savvy to put all this together so that those who are not here can still be a part of the class. Uh, we pray for Fred. I'm not sure what all is going on there, but we certainly pray for him. Trust him to you, to your care and love. Pray for any other needs or special requests. Lord, you know each heart. You know each need here in the group. Uh, we ask you to meet each one of those. Uh, may your, your good hand be upon all of us. Lord, as we've just read, you sent us into the world. As you sent the Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus sending us into the world to be his salt, his light, his ambassadors. And the intended result is that, 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 that the world will know that you love the Son, Heavenly Father, and that the Son and, and the Father love us. We're in that circle of love, and we represent a unity of purpose and a unity of love to this dark world that so desperately needs to hear the message. So we pray that we may be strong, strong men of faith, strong men of God, who represent you well. That's our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. All right, men, we'll see you next week. Thank you. Bye-bye.